Hello, Guilty Feminist. This is Deborah. We're heading off to Australia and New Zealand, where we will be appearing live and recording an episode in Christchurch on the 11th of May, Auckland on the 14th of May, Wellington on the 15th of May, Adelaide on the 18th of May, Perth on the 20th, Sydney on the 23rd, Melbourne on the 25th, Brisbane on the 27th, and finally Canberra on the 28th of May. So get in and get your tickets now. They are going very fast. Please go to guiltyfeminist.com and just click on live shows for any of these events. Instacart shoppers know groceries. They know that you can't make guacamole with rock-hard avocados. They know how to quickly find those peanut butter pretzels you can never find. And they keep you in the know by giving you updates about your order along the way. Let Instacart shoppers help take shopping off your plate so you can get time and energy back for what really matters. Visit instacart.com or download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Additional terms apply. Instacart. Add life to cart. Hello, Guilty Feminists. It's Deborah. Before you listen to this week's episode, I have a really important announcement. Please join us for an emergency episode, which is going to be a live stream on the 29th of April at 7.30 p.m. Because we are launching the Noisy and Annoying campaign to amend the policing bill to crack down on protest. Please join me, Femi Olawale, and Juliet Stevenson. We and some special guests are launching a Noisy and Annoying campaign through this emergency episode. Now, it might be seen as a very British tradition to be quiet and polite, but in truth, we have a great British tradition of being noisy and annoying. We have an outstanding history of protest and dissent, and it's responsible for our way of life. Votes for women, gay rights, no poll tax, free school dinners in lockdown, scrapping the university results algorithm. In fact, the very concept of the weekend, all of these are the result of being noisy and annoying. The bill the government is trying to pass includes a clause which says police can arrest protesters for being noisy and annoying which is the definition of a protest. Join us to defend our right to be noisy and annoying before it's too late. Go to guiltyfeminist.com to join us on 29th of April. And could you please bring friends, tell people that may not be natural Guilty Feminist listeners to come to this live stream. I mean, I don't normally ask that, but this is important for every single person who lives here. Please get everyone on board on this campaign because it won't be until noisy and annoying is properly trending that the government we'll have to rethink this clause and bring people in who may not share our politics, but do share their desire to protest for their politics. And now, this week's Guilty Feminist. I'm a feminist, but yesterday Tom said to me, would you like me to set the ring light up downstairs or upstairs for this call? And I said, upstairs, because I'm prettier upstairs. True story, Josie, I am prettier upstairs, and I'll tell you why. There is a lovely light that comes in from this glass door. And honestly, there have been times where I've just seen myself on one of these Zooms for an hour, and sometimes they're recording them because I do, like, talks and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think, oh, my God, I just look like an old moon face. Like, i just like, what's happened to me in lockdown? Upstairs, in a certain light, with the ring light and the balancing light, I look like an A-list movie star. (laughs) <laughs> and, I and I'm entranced by my own face. I'm like, you look so beautiful. I mean, it's, it's all dependent on angles and lighting, but I can tilt my head at an angle and I can be like, wow, you could, you're red carpet ready. 
downstairs, I really sometimes hate myself. I'm like, what has mm. happened to me? In, and it's just looking at yourself too much, but I am prettier upstairs and it's the truth. I do have a theory that uh, lockdown has shown us all the answer to the question, what will I look like in 10 years? <laughs> but it's shown us now, you know? I get to look how I was going to look when I was 50 now. <laughs> You don't. You look. You've always had a baby face, Josie Long, and you always will. You will be 104, and you're still going to look about 12, and it's annoying. This is emphatically not true, but I absolutely love to hear it. Thank you. You do. You're very. You look very young. I'm a feminist, but I hate to be the big spoon. Oh, I never want to be the big spoon. One. That's a really good one. And I don't think it really is like a case of like me thinking. Like, because I'm straight, so I have relationships with men. I'm in a relationship with a man. I worry it's got something to do with internalised, like how much I want certain masculinity things. But I also think it's just a comfort thing. Like, I want to be cuddled. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to do the cuddling. But yeah, it's. It's. Yeah, it I see me. what you mean. I feel the same about missionary position. Let him do oh, the work. Know. I'm a feminist, but let him do the work. I mean, you know, I don't want to be up there doing all the heaving and sighing. Frankly, 10,000 years of marginalisation, I deserve a break. I mean, not personally, just to be clear, when I say I feel old in lockdown, I don't mean I'm 10,000 years old, just in case anyone's thought, oh, immortal. If you were 10,000 years old, you would be the most incredible anti-aging human being anyone had ever met. Like, it would be the biggest compliment in the possible world. Well, this is why French women lie about their age in the other direction. French women, if they're 55, say they're 60. If they're 42, they say they're 46. Because they want people to go, oh, my God, you look so good for your age. Wow. Whereas British women tend to go, oh, what? I've never been older than 32 and I never will be. I'm a feminist, but if... Pretty Patel asked me for a tampon in a public ladies' room and she was wearing a white suit and she'd just come on. I'd be like, no, nah, I haven't got one. I, I deported it. Sorry. I feel that's And in fair. fact, I might take the loo roll with me when I left. <laughs> what if, what if she offered you 77 grand for it? <laughs> that's how much she thinks they cost I mean, it's possible do you have another one Josie well mine I think I might mine is too general but like mine is basically I am a feminist but I sort of wish all women were exactly like me it would make everything so much easier <laughs> that's basically it like, I can see that I barely wear makeup and I think makeup is like beautiful and people enjoy it, but I still think it remains very complicated. And I don't like the feeling that by just being me, people would think I was letting myself go or not making the best of myself. (laughs) That to me is so galling that actually like, I feel that I'm not wasting any time in a day, that I can have freedom to play with my face, that I am me exactly as I am whenever I want and I'm comfortable with that. And so when I feel that most people, most women disagree with that as a sort of principle of how one lives one's life, I feel like, God, it'd be so much easier if everyone just agreed with me, though. (laughs) 
Like, if everyone just judgment. got on board with the Josie Long philosophy, yeah. life would be better. And then I tell you what as well, I have a follow-up to my first one, which is I am a feminist, but the time when I got fake permanent eyelashes was the time I thought I looked the most beautiful I ever have in my life. Oh, yes! <laughs> I feel, I contradict myself about things like makeup all the time, but I suppose it's it does sort of come from a feminist impulse, which is I want women to feel free and unjudged. And I want ageing to feel free and unjudged. Well, I must admit, I have so got out of the habit of wearing makeup in lockdown that I now understand my own face. And I don't now think my own face looks too plain without makeup. Um, That's nice. These glasses I have to have for screen. So I always have reading glasses on for screens anyway. And I think my glasses are now my face armour so that I don't feel like you can really kind of see how much mascara or anything I've got on. So I don't bother with any of it anymore. And I'm quite pleased to have got to the point where I could turn up for a meeting with no makeup on and think, this is what I look like. If you don't like it, you don't want to have a meeting with me. Yeah. I, and I think that, especially in showbiz, that is something quite radical to be able to feel... It really is. ...that you're allowed that. Yeah. But I do still love makeup for play, but I want it as an option. I don't want it as a have to. I don't oh want to feel insecure without it. Yes, this is exactly it. That's it. I, that's how I don't want people to be made to feel insecure for not having it. I want people to experience the sheer confidence and joy of knowing your face and being at one with your face. Yeah, absolutely. Pippa Evans did this. It was some, she came on the podcast to talk about it. She did something called 100 Days as a Biscuit because her mother used to say to her, we're all very pale in our family because she's very blonde and sort of pale skin. And she said, my mother always said, if you don't wear mascara, you'll look like a biscuit, like a digestive biscuit. So she decided to do 100 Days as a Biscuit just to get to know her own face and then she's like, now I use makeup if I want to. It's fun. If it's playful, if I'm on stage or whatever, and I want to, but I don't feel obliged anymore. I know what my face looks like. Yeah. Um, oh, and can I just add, yeah. I have not shaved my legs since, I'm going to say February 2020. Wow. It's been the wow. longest. 2020. My- I yeah. am impressed. <laughs> That's proper feminism right here. Well, it's been really interesting because I had an experience where I stopped shaving my armpits. Me and my friend Nell, about 10 years ago now, just both were like tentatively stopped. And then suddenly, I hope this isn't grim to people listening, but I can feel it now. And suddenly we just felt this really emotional thing of like, oh, this soft little hair that belongs to me. Anyway, I, um, yeah, I just was like, I don't need to shave my legs, you know. My partner doesn't care. We got a baby. Who cares? Yeah. You know, like, well, do you know? That's I, been really interesting. A really interesting, and it is again. It becomes normal. At first, it could be a bit oh, but then it becomes normal. But underarm arms, uh, underarm, underarm hair, underarm hair, underarm hair has become very fashionable now. All of the young Gen Zs, they don't. Not all of them. Hashtag not all Gen Zs. Many Gen Z young women don't shave under their arms. And to those Gen Zs, I want to say you're very welcome. Me and my friends, we push that envelope for you and you're very welcome. Pioneers. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Pioneer millennial, Josie Long. Are you a millennial, Josie? <laughs> just about, yeah. yeah are, you an age, about. Are, you a, are you an elderly millennial? I am. But it's interesting because it's something that I feel like I always related to in terms of sincerity and political openness like wanting to be political wanting to be sincere which I feel like a millennial trait and also only 
at the age of 38 being able to buy a flat. I feel like that's a very millennial trait. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But exciting that you've now you've now done that. Yeah, it's changed my life. I was quoting you the other day and saying about cynicism and saying that you had said... Oh, I saw that. When you get to the end of your life, no one turns around and says, congratulations, you didn't enjoy any of it. Uh, (laughs) I think that's a great quote. Um, Thank you. I'm a feminist, but somebody the other day wrote this lovely tweet about how they've learned so much confidence from the guilty feminist and without the guilty feminist, they wouldn't have been able to go up for this new job, which they got. And I was so touched, I quote tweeted... And what I wanted to do was add a GIF saying, yeah, you did. So like, you know, yeah, you did. You got that job. And the first one, when I put in, yeah, you did on the GIFs that came up was Joey, who sometimes do sit. He does say, yeah, you do. Yeah, you did. And so I posted it. And then I realized it it didn't say, yeah, you did. It was just Joey winking. So basically someone said, I've got so much confidence in the guilty feminist and I got, helped me get a job. And I was, and I just went, how are you doing? <laughs> I can't believe I did that. I was, I, was, I was so kindly and sincerely and warmly sharing this this thing with me. And I, but I was like, I can't delete it. It's too much. I, I'll just let them read into that. What If they've seen it and then I've deleted it, it looks worse. So basically. Yeah, it looks like you subtly wanted them to know, but only them to know. <laughs> yeah. So basically, if, if you do write to me saying the God's Femmes has helped you with confidence, I will probably hit on you. <laughs> How are you doing? But no. can I say, I feel like Joey starts out a difficult character, but by the end feels like one of the most sort of feminist characters who grows in that show, right? I agree. I agree. I think he's the most feminist man in the show in the end. Yeah. Yeah. It's and a- that's not saying much, to be honest. No, to be fair. <laughs> that's a low bar. Low bar. <laughs> Ross, I think. I think we need to be honest and say Ross and Rachel are divorced now. Oh, I hope. Yeah, I think so. I think he is a problematic man and he is he's taken all this hate and he's squashed it down. He is hashtag not all men, I promise you now. Mm. He's, he says things like not all men all the time. He's very active on social media, isn't he? Yeah, it is post-divorce groups, four divorce guy groups. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, he's angry now. He's angry. <laughs> Chandler, I think, is happily settled down with Monica. He's fine. But I don't think, I honestly, I think he's he really has probably sunk into, he just lets Monica get on with it and do everything. And he's I think Chandler has not grown as a person. Sure. No, he hasn't. I, I can guarantee you he hasn't. You're 100% right. Um, whereas Joey, I mean, I think we know a bit what happened to Joey because there was a show called Joey, but I must admit I didn't watch it and that's why I, I got cancelled. So I think he was just sleezing around in LA with young oh, women. Oh, so he yeah. he went went back, went backwards. No, I think he met the right person. She's a producer, she's older. Um I don't know. I don't know what happened in Joey, so I might be stepping on it. This might be right in to tell me if I'm wrong. Um I think she's older, she's a producer, and he kind of went, Hold on a minute, this is what I really, really want. And then unfortunately, on one trip back to New York, when he was just going back to see friends and catch up, he and Rachel finally got it on. And uh, he cheated on the producer with Rachel. Um, he's now moved back. Ross won't see any of them anymore. Ross doesn't speak to any of them. And Monica and Chandler are in the suburbs now with kids and it's just not the I, same. Can I just say, I just assume that you were just 
actually telling me the plot of Joey because it was so plausible. I was like, yeah, yeah, this is right, yeah. And now I'm I'm like, you just made it up! I'm just riffing it, I'm riffing it. (laughs) Phoebe, I think uh, she and Mike probably moved to Lisbon or somewhere like that. Oh, nice. Yeah, they're very very European. I don't think that he, he plays piano in bars, she's, you know... They've got loads of little children running around with no clothes on the whole time on the Lido. Gunther's still at Central Perk, still serves coffee to Rachel. He's 71 years old now. I mean, Ben is 71 years old now. That's how how much they've aged in that parallel universe. Ben Um, is a young Republican. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think he's a Second Amendment's right guy, Ben? Oh, God. He's probably in college now because he must be 20 years old or something, isn't it? 25 years old. He must be. Let's look at the facts. He grew up fairly privileged in New York. Mm-hmm. So he could well be oh, an aspiring right. film director. He went to the same school as Sting's kids. So, <gasps> so it must be a band. posh school. Posh school. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I think you're right. He's a Second Amendment rights guy. He's a Republican. He... Wore a Make America Great hat again. I don't know what to tell you. He's, I mean, he wasn't, he was quite a bratty little kid. It'll be a sad reunion is what we're saying. Oh, God. I mean, I really, I'd love them to have that much ambition for that kind of, to rip our hearts out and just. I tell you what, I'm excited for the Frasier reboot, if they have a reboot of Frasier. Are you though? Yeah. It's not going to have Niles in it. Frasier it won't Niles, have Niles in it. No, no, no. David Hyde Pierce isn't going back to that. Kelsey Grammer oh. was a nightmare to work with. Oh, yeah, I did. Yeah, so I really am a bit like, I'm talking about the character Frasier, not the actor Kelsey Grammer, you know. Mm. Um, oh, if Niles is not there, Niles is the heart and soul of that, I know. Yeah, and, well, I don't think David Hyde Pierce wants to work with him, but also, this is total goss now. I mean, it's just so, I don't know this for sure, but he, I think he spent years trying to get away from that role to get other roles and not be associated oh. with that role. So it's just going to be Kelsey Grammer, increasingly irrelevant trying to sleep with women half his age. Oh, no. You know that it is. You know that it is. You know. I, I actually wouldn't like that. He's a 70-year-old Republican. <laughs> what are we hoping for here? What could possibly go right? Yeah. From a variety of bedrooms and kitchens via Zoom, the Spontaneity Shop presents The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis White, guest co-host Josie Long, and our very special guest, Sile Edwards, talking about arts emergency. Woo! Yeah. <laughs> Yay. You can tell we are normally a theatre show. We'd, we've never been a studio podcast. We've always been in front of a live audience, so we applaud ourselves. Um, I don't think normal podcasts have people going, yeah, woo <laughs> themselves, because they're more like breakfast radio. This is The Guilty Feminist, the podcast in which we explore our noble goals as 21st century feminists and our hypocrisies and insecurities which undermine them. I'm Deborah Francis White. With me is Josie Long and we're talking about Arts Emergency. So Josie, can you tell us a little bit about what Arts Emergency is? Yes, I would love to. Um, Arts Emergency exists as a charity, but I see it very much as like radical cultural organisation because it exists to um, help support people who don't come from privilege to go into the arts, the humanities, but also to access arts and humanities and to claim them as their own. And for me, it's about broadening who is able to 
participate in culture and create culture and who is supported in doing that so that actually we have a better, richer, more wonderful cultural life, all of us. <laughs> if that doesn't sound too pretentious. It's no. an organisation that supports young people, basically. Well, I, and I love it. You started it. When did you start it? I started it with um, my friend Neil Griffiths. Neil's a really interesting person because he used to run an activist group called No Sweat, who are amazing. They raise money to send to people who are organising around the world, particularly in the garment industry. But the whole point of it was kind of solidarity, not charity, and, and sort of saying, we can raise the money, give it to you, you're the people running your own struggle. And like, just such a cool guy. And he used to run comedy gigs where he would absolutely take the piss in terms of how much he requested you to do and stuff like that. And um, I just, we met and we got friends from that because we're both from North Kent and we're both from sort of, I guess, similar class background. And we really um, started talking around the time of, um, in 2010, when the coalition government took away the block grant that funds the humanities uh, at university level and they tripled tuition fees. And both of those just like sent us absolutely into rage. Like we couldn't bear it because it felt like they were trying to, uh, well, stealth privatising those degrees and, and trying to get rid of lots of the variety of kind of humanities education we have. And also they were making it harder for ordinary people to study. It was a reaction to that. And initially we were thinking, oh, shall we try and pay some people through uni? Like we could fundraise. And then gradually, the more we talked, the more we thought what we really want to do is harness the fact that we know so many people in the creative industries and we so, know so many people who just have this untapped desire to be useful for other people and this untapped desire to share what they've managed to build up and to share their knowledge and expertise. And so we kind of just thought like if we could find a way to sort of harness that and harness the enthusiasm and the people as opposed to just making it about fundraising, which obviously like... In an ideal world, we would both have been so independently wealthy that we could not only pay people through college, but also do what we're doing now. But I in think a very me, real way, though, Josie, if you were independently wealthy, I don't know if you would have started this. Yeah, exactly. If I was independently wealthy, I'd be busy on my yacht. Exactly. And the whole point of this is you're somebody from a working class background who went to Oxford, studied something frivolous. See, I wouldn't describe myself as working class because I think I I have so honestly I could talk about the class system in the United Kingdom forever because basically I come from a background where we didn't have any money and we had some complicated circumstances. But both my parents went to university, so mm. I do and I don't count in different ways. And so yeah, but I, exactly that. Sorry to interrupt. I just don't want people being no, like, that's... she's not working class. She's lower, lower, lower middle class. And I'd be like, <laughs> true. It's so true though, isn't it? Because in Australia. Neither of my parents went to university. I was the first person in my family to go to university, actually, I think. Wow. Yeah, I was. But I would also describe myself as middle class because Australia is different in so many different ways. Like mm -hmm. when I was growing up, it wasn't abnormal for people who hadn't been to university to be able to afford a nice house with a garden because there's a lot more land in Australia. And so although we were an ordinary family. My father had an ordinary job and there was no, as I said, no one had been to university. There was lots of books in the house, 
My mum was very clever at school. She had to leave school. She went to a, she actually went to a, my father went to a state school. My mother went to a private school, which is interesting. I didn't go to a private school, but she had to drop out at year 10 um, before you did the HSC. You've heard of that on Neighbours, which is like A-levels, because no point educating girls, they're only going to get married. And that (sighs) devastated her. And in my family library, there were so many books. When I look back now, so many of our books said inside my mother's name and first prize for science, first prize for biology, first prize oh. for chemistry, first prize for physics, first prize for English, first prize for maths, first prize for geography, first prize. She won everything and she could run fast as well. So she's a really good runner. Oh. But she wanted to go to art school and be an artist. And um, that was not allowed. I'm probably telling more than she might want me. She's very private. I mean, I went to Oxford and that's, I don't know why I got in really, that I shouldn't have. Oh, I'm the same. I feel really like stand-up got me in because I did stand-up as a kid and I think they were a bit like, oh, this is some weird extracurricular thing, sure. And I was like, uh, Exactly what happened with me. Oxford <laughs> loves a weird extracurricular. And I had been a Jehovah's Witness, so been in a cult, learnt to imp- do comedy improv, did sign language, did Japanese, because I did Japanese at high school in Australia, as lots of people did. So I seemed interesting. And also, I'll be honest with you, Josie, in the interview, I told the that I didn't know a lot about, I was just going up for English. And I didn't, I just didn't know enough because I'd been in a cult for so long. So when the tutor asked me what my favourite literature was, I blagged about a load of Australian literature I knew he would not know about. So he said, oh, well, I don't know. Tell me more about that. Tell me more about that. And I could say anything I wanted. And so I did such a blag. So you basically were like, I have got a boyfriend. He goes to another school. (laughs) I do know a poem. He goes to another school, basically, was what I did. And I remember the guy before me who really wanted to get in and he was so well read and he was so nervous. And I'd done a lot of impro. Um, I'd been doing a lot of improvisation. So he was so nervous that he said they, um, he gave me a poem to interpret and I misunderstood it and I panicked. And he said, it's not about a vase. It's about the poets, the, you know, muse. Then the tutor said, this is such an Oxford interview wanky thing to do. Can you think of any words starting with F right now? You know, you know when they that famous thing where they throw a ball at you or cut your tie in half to see how you're going to react, and this poor nervous lad went, uh, 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 "Interesting words, starting with F. Are you thinking of any right now?" And he, of course, he said, oh, "You must have been meaning for me to say fuck, but I couldn't say it. Couldn't get. I couldn't." So he said, "Eventually, I came up with fribble, which is a D. H. Lawrence word." But he said he couldn't think of any more words starting with F. Any words were starting with F at all, and he just froze, which would have been a good word starting with F, but he didn't think of it because he was in a state of paralysis. This poor boy. And then for me, they said, do you know any words starting with B? And because I was from doing a lot of impro, I was like, sure, Bumblebee, uh, Mr. Bumble from Oliver, bizarre, berserk, ballistic. And I could just say word after word. And I got in because of that kind of thing. I think they thought I'd be fun to teach. Turns out I wasn't fun to teach because I was always off doing a play and didn't turn up for my tutorials and <laughs> didn't have my essays in. But they want to know that. I see that now in retrospect. Don't blame them, blame me. Yeah, um, I mean, I very much, I've recently found out I have ADHD and I can really see how that meant I would have seemed incredibly charming and then not followed through on that promise at a later date. And I'd like I to might apologize. get diagnosed as well, you know. I'm beginning to get suspicious of myself with ADHD recently. Well, a lot of, I mean, it would make sense. A lot of people, I think, who are similar do similar things, don't they? Yeah, you know? I think so. I, well, I do too many things all of the time and yeah, my attention flits from one to one. I think I should probably get diagnosed.
Hello, Guilty Feminist. This is Deborah. If you are craving more Guilty Feminist live streaming after the last show that we did, don't worry, we've got you covered. On Monday, the 19th of April, we'll be recording an episode of the podcast. And although you can't be with us in person to clap and cheer, laugh and cry, you can join us via the magic of the internet by buying a ticket for the live stream. Your ticket gets you an instant live audio and video connection to everything that goes on while we're recording, including all the best bits that get cut out of the final podcast. And you can comment along via the chat and maybe have your contribution read out or your question answered. And if you can't be there live because it's the middle of the night where you are, you can get access to the video for 72 whole hours. So it's The Guilty Feminist at King's Place, 7.30pm UK time on Monday, the 19th of April. To get your tickets, go to kingsplace.co.uk or follow the link on guiltyfeminist.com. And now back to the podcast. Our guest today is a literary agent at Mushens Entertainment, working with writers to create engaging stories and proposals for publication. She was supported through Arts Emergency, an award-winning mentoring charity and support network, and now sits on their board of trustees. Please welcome Silly Edwards! Yeah. Woo! Yeah! Yay, the clapping! <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, you Hello. do. <laughs> so, Silly Edwards, Josie has filled us in a little bit about what Arts Emergency is. Can you tell us what your experience was like working with Arts Emergency? It was really, really great. I mean, I wouldn't have gone and sat on the board of trustees if I didn't have a really, really good time and everyone at Arts Emergency supported me through every step of my career. So oh. I've just felt like I have an extended family, which is really nice. And um, it makes me really proud that basically to hear you speak about the organisation in such like cherished terms, because like I helped set it up and I was there for, you know, the first sort of like few years really. But then uh, I'm not a useful person to the organisation, really, in terms of I can get people around sometimes. But we have the people who run the organisation now are wonderful. It is staffed by, like, just incredible, smart, interesting, thoughtful, capable people. And it's just, yeah, it's wonderful. Um, who, who was your mentor? Do you mind? Do you think you would mind sharing? I think it's public. Um, it was Rennie Edo Lodge. So oh, wow. I was mentored by her in through my last year of A-levels and into my first year of university. Um, That's a fancy mentor, writing. if you don't mind me saying. <laughs> she's, she was really, really amazing um, and still is amazing. Still, oh, I feel my entire career to her because she was just there for me in those moments where I was like, I can't do it. I'm the only one. No one likes me. She was always there. So it just makes such a difference to have someone in your corner. And Rennie is absolutely fantastic. And also we like wanted to make sure that it wasn't just like oh, they're your mentor for six months and you've ticked the box and there we go. We wanted it to be like putting people together who will form a relationship, matching people properly so that it then, it's about like the magic of connection and not about like this person will do this for you and then that'll be that, you know? So it's very meaningful, I think. I think it's because mental pairs are matched on their kind of wants and hopes and goals rather than just like you want to work in publishing this person works in publishing it's yes. a match yes yeah, it's exactly. much more personalized than that so you were at school when you discovered arts emergency I was at college um and it sounds like such a wanker but arts emergency discovered me um which was 
a really fun time. So I was on BBC Question Time. There was a student edition and the Deputy Prime Minister at the time, Nick Clegg, was on it. And I was so tempted to throw eggs at him because he'd run this whole campaign, um, you know, been the, the face of it. And I was very angsty teen where uh, it was about, you know, student loans should drop. And it was back when they were about three grand. Um, and then they tripled. And I know he wasn't the prime minister and that probably didn't have very much say over what happened there. But it was it just felt I think I'm I'm part of a generation that felt really, really let down because it wasn't always bleak and there was a lot of hope. And then it just got dashed right in front of us and we were also just before we were going to vote so we were kind of 16 17 and so the next general election was going to be the one we would actually be able to vote in so we were very disappointed and I think it swayed a lot of us into our voting choices that we have now but I was on that something I said to him went viral and Neil actually reached out um, and said that you know he was really moved by it and asked if I you know had considered going to university and if I was looking for any advice for getting into university and things like that and we started to talk and it became really obvious to me that I did want to go to university because at the time I was like absolutely not not going to university that's for posh people and I don't have time to write like 50,000 word essays. Well also presumably if the student fees had gone up from three grand to nine grand and you were on question time confronting Nick Clegg about that it seemed inaccessible because that's 30 grand's worth of debt before you've even had living costs and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah. books and, and living costs and all the rest. Where I was living, I wasn't going to be able to study there. I could barely do my A-level homework because we lived in a place where I didn't have my own bedroom. So I was sharing with my autistic brother. It got to a point for me where I was like, I need to work because if I don't work, then I don't get to have a house and a life. So, um, but then I realised with the help of Rennie, Arts Emergency and my grandmother as well, that going to university might mean I could do something different and do something that meant my passion was aligned with my job. So I don't think I'd be a literary agent if I didn't have all of that support. And is that what you wanted to do? Did you know you wanted to work in publishing? Okay, so I'd watched The Double West Prada and I knew I wanted to like <laughs> work in an office because I liked the idea of it, but I had no clue how to... The only people I knew who worked in offices were accountants and estate agents. So I had no idea how to sort of marry that desire to work in an office and wear like clickety heels with a job yeah. until uh, I started talking with Rennie and she was in the process of getting her book published. And so while Rennie was kind of talking about it, I realised that being involved in the process would mean I could make books, read, which I love to read and I was really good at English and combine that with the job. So I just had kind of like an epiphany moment where I was like, oh my God, it's a thing. But I think that's like so much of it as well is connecting people to things that they're not necessarily being exposed to. Because I think like there are plenty of people from privilege who are being told and shown that they can do anything the whole time. And actually that doesn't make for like the best people for those things. You know, it's like, it's yeah, sorry, I can yeah, also that, hear my daughter saying, Mommy, at the door. <laughs> Hang on, I'll, I'll mute myself and I'll grab her. Hang on. Okay, amazing. Baby on the show, baby on the show. <laughs> the thing about middle-class connections is you hear it all the time of people saying, wasn't Toby's best man a, a solicitor? Could he not give Jeremy some advice? You know, didn't Eleanor's son work at MI5? And that's what the connections are. You know, somebody knows somebody knows somebody knows somebody, and arts emergency means that's the case 
for anybody. Hello. Hello. Oh my goodness, she's beautiful. She's got really gorgeous pajamas on. I know we can't. This isn't visual, but it's um. She's so sweet. My goodness. She is so sweet. She also reminds me, reminds me a lot of my daughter who goes completely silent as soon as she sees Zoom. So she's like, uh, she'll kick up such a fuss and she'll be behind the camera like throwing a real tantrum. You bring her to the other side and she would be like, I'm a baby angel. Aren't I <laughs> yeah, it's like they know and they're like, Hello. just so, yeah. Yeah. She's... She is so sweet. She's oh, so big now. Yes, yeah, I think I was expecting she's... her to be a baby. She's going to sit on my lap and eat crisps, if that's okay. It's, it's mandatory. <laughs> you've got to, if you want to stay with Mummy, you've got to be very quiet and you can just look at the special pictures, okay? Okay. Hello. Hi. Hello. How was nursery? Hello. Hello. What's her name, Josie? Josie, can you introduce your guest, please? Hello. This is my daughter, whose name we keep a secret, but oh. her name shall be Josie Jr., Great, good. For the sake of this, um, do you want to say hello, Baba? Are you Josie today? Uh-huh. Yeah. Hello, Josie Jr. Uh-huh. Hello, Josie Jr. Hello. <laughs> I can tell so that her parents are in show business. Yeah. She knows what to do with the mic. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. I saw um, our friends David Reed and Danielle Ward uh, saying that their child has never seen them on stage, either of them. She's only two. But when she goes to her grandparents, they've got a freestanding loo roll holder and she goes and gets it, brings it into the living room and goes, welcome to my show. <laughs> and I'm like, that does not surprise me at all. Even though she's not seen that modelled with her parents, she just has it in her. She just show knows. business is in the genes. Yeah, I mean, before I had to, I really thought, oh, when I have a child, they're going to be an accountant. They're going to be yeah, something so stable. <laughs> they're going to be something so stable. I wonder, though, my daughter, we, we called her Matilda. We don't say that kind of publicly. I call her M. But uh, we called her Matilda, and she sits down with books and will just literally mm. through books. And I haven't read a paperback or a hardback in you know physical form since I was pregnant. So she's never seen anyone read, but she loves reading. And I don't know. Mm. But she's really only seen know. you on devices. Yeah, she's only seen me on Kindle um, and my That's laptop, but she sits with all her books and will just, sometimes she tries to eat them, so she's not like totally advanced advanced, but she does like to leaf through them. That's fascinating. Yeah, cover to cover, and she'll sit there for ages, you know, like I thought baby attention spans were quite short, but she completely fascinated by them. I'm so sorry to be in the way of the interview, by the way. Um, let's just get straight back to it. I'm sorry to be... Yeah, please don't say sorry. This is something I do a lot. That would be my, I'm a feminist, but... Because I always say sorry, and it's like we're all at home. We have children. Yeah. It's They're going to do that. The children. It's fine. We it's you have to be raising the next generation while working, and I think rather than mothers feeling sorry, fathers should normalise it. It should be normal for all parents. 
And I think at the beginning of the pandemic when, or maybe it was even before the pandemic that that famous clip happened where the child came in and the man just put his hand. And I could see, you know, it was before this age of Zoom. I could see why he did it. He just thought, oh my God, I'm on television and my toddler's come in. So he just pushed her back and then a baby came in on wheels. Do you remember this? Yeah. So funny. And then the mother came in and grabbed them both and ran out. But the little girl had come in with such confidence. She was obviously, she was sort of marched in so confidently. (laughs) And now I think more likely the father would put her on his lap, but it was such an early example of this. He just didn't know what to do and panicked and went, pretend this isn't happening. But now it's much more common. And I saw a mother the other day, she was on television being interviewed about something terribly important and the child came in and, and the child went, mummy, can I have a biscuit? And she just went, yes, you can. And then went back to talking about politics. And then the child went, saw this opportunity, went, can I have two biscuits? And she went, yes, you can. And she was like, I think you're in a bind here. I think you've just got to say yes to anything. Can I have an elephant? Uh-huh. Uh- <laughs> but do you know what? what I, I hear what you're saying and it actually feels like the thing that's been quite hard becoming a parent has been how little as a society as a whole, people seem to cherish kids and like mm. want them everywhere. And like, I know that like it would be such a happier place if people accepted that like children are also part of society, you know, and the same with like elderly people are all still part of society. And if like everyone was brought in, if it didn't feel like, no, no, public discourse is for adults only, you know, between a certain age and a certain age, you know, I think it would be. Yeah, I agree. I agree. But also we we dismiss elderly people and don't have we have such a narrow band of people who are allowed into the discourse. Mm. Elderly people know so much. And I've really learned from living with Steve Ali, who's Syrian. He is so attentive to elderly people. It's unbelievable. And he's like in the Arab culture, old people are where all the wisdom is and where all the interesting stories are. And it's true. When you talk to old people, it's like traveling in time. Like I sat next to a lady at a lunch once who had been a Wren in the Second World War. And I was like, oh, my God, this is like being in – I can find out everything about what it was like to be in the Second World War here. This is incredible. But I just noticed in life we just – it's like you hit a certain age and then no one's interested in what you have to say. Whereas and we have a very elderly neighbour who's in – well, she just – she turned 90 in lockdown and Steve did a socially distanced happy birthday party for her on the curb. It was so sweet. He treats her like she's his – Gran, he took her to this church service that was in Maltese for like three hours because she wanted to go to this Maltese Easter church service. And he didn't understand the Maltese, but he was like, no, it was really important to her. And I was like, I used to say hi and bye to her. I did not engage in that same way. And it's so much better. That's the fabric of society and community to engage with the children in your street and the elderly people in your street. It's so important to do it. I realised before having my child, I was so, I think also because I was very overworked and quite stressed all the time. And when people are in that mode, you just don't have time for anything that's a, quote, interruption. So it's too noisy, you're like, don't have time for it. Or it doesn't understand quite quickly enough, you're like, don't have time for it. And I think being able to slow down in the way we all have this year, even though everything's still full on and intense, there's been a lot of slowing down. So hopefully that that stays and we can appreciate things a bit more and, and accept the interruptions because they are part of life. Yeah. And uh, do you find that like when I found in lockdown going out with my daughter and seeing her focus on an ant or a leaf or something was the like, it felt like she was giving me a gift of like, 
take notice, enjoy things better, enjoy smaller things. And I was like, oh, wow. (laughs) The first time my daughter grabbed a piece of mud, it was like this clod of mud off of the ground. I immediately went, where's the hand sanitizer? We need to get her sanitizer. And I was like, oh my God, I've turned into my mother. (laughs) I was just so focused. And I think also all of the constant sanitizing has made me go, anything is dirty, don't touch it, don't touch it. Yeah, that's hard. But recently she started to walk and she likes to just walk with her hands in the air like this. So she, she puts her hands above her head and goes walking through the grass and it is the most beautiful thing ever. And I just have let finally let go of that fear that she's going to fall and I'm just watching her kind of walk across the grass with her hands in the air and just going, I should do that more. That's just it's enjoying the freedom of kind of walking through and being completely free. It's really nice. Yeah, they're very like sensorial, aren't they? Like if something feels good on her hand, she'll just sit there doing it for ages. Yeah, yeah. It's like good basic senses. And that's just something really nice about that really innocent enjoyment of, of the world. Yeah. This is a lovely conversation and I'm so pleased I've got you on together. You know, in a way, this has veered into a conversation about parenthood and also society and what we value. But I think this does speak to the heart of Arts Emergency around who's entitled to be into the arts because it's like well a mother's allowed to be in the arts often they're pushed out they're not invited back in after a period of parental leave oh and like deborah as well i wrote a show about um motherhood and in particular sort of pregnancy and giving birth and worries about climate change and about how that interacted with my daughter. And I realised as I was writing it that since I started stand-up when I was 16 years old, I'd had this barrage of people coming at me saying, women only talk about women's experiences, basically telling me that these things that I were happening to me were boring, gross, unimportant and shouldn't be talked about on stage. And like women are like, I couldn't believe how much it, I sort of suddenly realised that I'd been constantly warded off talking about anything that might relate to my body or my lived experience. And it was just really shocking to me because it was like, wow, like the idea that this stuff, which is life changing and beautiful and poetic and wonderful, and would part be boring. of what life is, without it, life doesn't exist. Yeah, with, and it's, you know, birth is like birth and death. Like, what is bigger than those two things, you know? And feeling that for some reason, if I tried to talk about it, that would be less interesting than like a man talking about wanking or something, you know, like it would letting the side down almost. Yeah, it would be niche and it would exactly, it would be letting the side down because I'd be talking about something boring that wasn't universal. Uh It's so awful. And and just feminine and feminine is less good that women should also be talking about um, wanking 24 seven because, and to be honest, that's not a fascination to most people. Wanking is a fascination to male comedians, if I'm honest. It's not, it's, it's, they've got a lot of time on their hands and that's not all they've got on their hands. And it's, it's true. It's like some of the stuff male comics talk about, they think it's what men think about or what all people think about it. It isn't. It's just what comics talk about and what comics think about. And that is, that's where the real niche is. Like the cliche is women talk about their periods on stage, which women hardly ever do, mostly because we're told that's all we talk about. So we avoid it. But it's one of the biggest things. And I genuinely think if it happened to men, you better believe they'd mention it. There'd be whole hours. But also it reflects our society too. It's like hide away the process of dying, hide away birth and infancy, pretend that human beings are just a a sort of adult that can just function unfettered in a certain way. 
Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's so much more humane to sort of understand that life has different phases and, you know, that people have different needs at different times. Oh, yeah, Shakespeare's Seven Ages of Man. You know, it's so fun. About what we've talked about has, has reduced and reduced and reduced. Are we at an exciting time though now, Celia? Because you're someone who represents writers. Do you think we're at an exciting time where we're exploring new vistas? We are hungry for different voices, voices that we haven't heard before in terms of gender, race, sexual orientation, gender identity, disability. Do you think we are now in a time when we're hungry for new? <laughs> well, I, I hope so. I mean, there's been a few times where I wonder if what people say match up with what people actually do. But when I look around, especially with the types of projects that I'm working on and that people who I work with are excited about and working on, there is a definite change. And there's something, even if they're topics that we've talked about before, like motherhood or racism, anti-racism, activism, there's a different slant on them, which is making me really excited for the next publishing works in about two, 18 months, two years in advance. So for the next 18 months to two years are going to be so revolutionary and I'm really excited. Wow, that's it's exciting. Very, yeah, it's very cool as well to be like, I know what's going to happen in 2023. I can see the future. I've got my little crystal <laughs> <Yes>. ball. <laughs> can you tell me a bit about the clients that you represent? Yeah, sure. So I represent a predominantly non-fiction list, which means I get to talk about all of the taboo, scary topics that no one wants to talk about, but we can't hide behind the fact that they're fiction. Um, But I also represent a couple of uh, really, really cool fiction authors as well who are writing excellent stories. And I have built my list that way and want to continue building my list that way because I grew up not having a lot of conversations and not being told a lot of things. And a lot of the reasons for that is because it was like, oh, it's just not for you, you know, and not for you because you're a child or not for you because that's not something we talk about or that's not something that, you know, we get to say, we just have to keep on with keeping on. So I, I started in agenting, working with uh, an agent who had a very vast and eclectic list and, and her list has so many good nonfiction books on it. And when I was working on them, I was like, but this is what I want to do. I want to be able to start these conversations and have these conversations with people who know what they're talking about but speak to communities who might not be included in these narratives, despite it directly affecting them. So I work with quite a few people who are having really, really interesting conversations and starting really interesting conversations and developing books around those topics, which are just so good. And can you give us any names to look out for? Yep. So I represent Ilian Morrison of Mixing Up Motherhood, who you should so look up, Josie. She does a lot around birth trauma. Oh, wow. And, yeah. And just like the kind of demystifying giving birth, but also the feelings around it. So all of the postpartum sort of things that you go through that you just don't talk about because they're too icky or they're too mm-hmm. different or weird or, you know, no one else experiences that. Um, she just talks about and cracks wide open. So I found her after I gave birth and have been recommending her since. She's just wow. amazing. Um, and she was also has done stuff with Giovanna Fletcher and lots and lots of different spaces which is really exciting and she's a black muslim woman so when i saw her i was like finally someone who's talking about this stuff who looks like me and sounds like me and you know hates stuff i hate like stuff i like so i could just actually you know empathize with her and feel like i was understood it's so meaningful to connect with someone where you don't have to where it is just a shared experience straight away (laughs) Yes, yeah. mm. the most wonderful thing. It's just great. You have to explain yourself and all of everything that comes with it all the time, which can be exhausting. 
Exactly, especially in the motherhood space, which has just not been diversified anywhere near enough because, you know, lots and lots of women are mothers and lots and lots of different types of women are mothers. And there are so many women and birthing people who just get overlooked. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's not diverse. That, that landscape's not diverse enough for my liking. But Ilian is brilliant um, and does some brilliant work. And I also represent uh, Lauren Ray on the complete opposite end of the scale. She's a journalist and writer um, and she self-published her memoir, which is absolutely hilarious. I was laughing for days after reading it. And it's just a really feel good kind of thing. She does a lot of journalism, which always makes you feel really warm and bubbly, even though it's like, my life's falling apart. And you're like, my life's also <laughs> falling apart. Let's fall apart together. What's um, the title of her memoir, please? It was called I'm Not a Writer. Oh, nice. It, it sold out. So I was like, right, well... It's sold out. I can't get a copy. So I've got to represent her so I can read it. <laughs> just, right. So basically I went through the back door and I represent Laura Jane Clark from Your Home Made Perfect and Kachenga, who's an activist and writer. And She was on The Guilty Feminist recently. She was. She was, she was. so wonderful. It's an episode, <laughs> if you didn't hear it and you missed it, listeners, it's an episode called Black Trans Lives Matter. And she has one of the most exceptional minds of anyone I've ever met. And also, I just guest edited Stylist magazine, and she wrote the letter page. And actually, Stylist, we were brainstorming names of people who could do that. And Stylist said Kachenga, and I went, yes, she just did the podcast. She's absolutely amazing. She is so good. Just her way with words is oh, incredible. It's like just talking incredible. to a poem. It, it <laughs> is. It is. And I'm I'm very, very privileged to get to read her words and, and you know, her story that she's working on before anyone else. So I feel oh. very smug <laughs> about that. You must that. do. Yeah, um, she's great. Can you tell me, what would you say to a young person who feels like they don't have access to a career in the arts? And a career in the arts can be a lot of things. I know that, you know, someone may want to be an architect, and I know that's something that Arts Emergency has uh, created mentors and opportunities for. The arts may be publishing. It may be you're working on that side of it, not, you know, writing a play. Uh, there's all sorts of jobs that are in the arts that aren't necessarily the ones you'd think of, like painter, actor. What would you say to a young person who wanted to be in the arts or knew they wanted to work in that sphere, but felt like that's not for me, that's for others, that's for posh people or rich people, or um, I'm going to feel like the second cousin, I'm going to say the wrong thing, I'm not going to know. I think, okay, I, I'll start with the stat because it's probably the best place to, to start. That Privileged people are four times more likely to get into the arts and that hasn't changed in like ages. You know, it's probably much generation before me that that, that stat started and, and it's still kind of true now. But that doesn't mean that they're the best people for it. Very often connections, um, like we said before, connections can get you in and knowing someone who knows someone uh, or just being in the right place at the right time. And so what I would say to anyone who thinks it's not for them is that there's no such thing as it being for you or not for you. So that's just a ridiculous notion that someone's made up to make themselves feel better about being there. And that doesn't mean that you should not be able to be there too. If you have a genuine passion for something and there is an identifiable skill that you can get good at. You don't have to be born with it either. Like there's this thing in the arts, it's like they were just born creative, like they were born with a pen in their hand and they can draw amazing, intricate drawings. And you know what, like maybe some people can, but most people who are really good at what they do practiced and kept practicing and failed and did tried again and then failed again and tried something else. 
And so if you're willing to try and if there's something that you can keep going with, then the arts are absolutely for you and you should try to get in in any way that you can. Like go and break down the door and, you know, kick it. Well, go a bit like getting a bit activist here, but, you know, kick down the door and go in like it's absolutely for you. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And I, do you know what? I've started trying to write more prose and I have been a comedian for 20 years. Right. And yet I've been finding it so hard to keep that confidence and so hard to let myself have that permission. And I realized something, which was, I was like, oh yeah, but it's going to be shit. And then I was like, there's lots of things that I think are absolute dog shit that are so successful. So even if what I do is shit, it could still be really successful. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it could be that you write Fifty Shades of Grey. Maybe yeah. you're, so you're not going to. You're not necessarily going to say this is the best thing I've ever done, but certainly. It's well, the thing that's made me the wealthiest. Well, no, actually, I, I'm being silly, really, but I, I just want to say to people, your concern is not whether or not you are good enough to do the thing. Your concern is, do you desperately want to do the thing and believe that that thing is the right thing for you? Because if so, your only concern should be, like you say, doing it as much as you can and keeping going. It's not actually about you working out whether you're good enough for it. That's that's like, that's the true message. Do you know what? The best career advice I ever got was uh, from a managing director. They know who they are. I'm not going to say who they are, but the managing director of quite a big publishing imprint sat me down at lunch once and said to me, look, if you want to do something and you want to get somewhere, you've seen a job you really want to do or something that you really want to do. If you can do at least 60% of it, you can learn the rest. And I was like, that's bold. What do you mean? Like, I need to you know, just flag the 40% because if I can't do it, I can't do it. But then I I went away and I kind of thought, actually, if the 40% is something I can learn and the 60% is something I know I can do already and get better at, then why not go for it? And that's not to say I advocate for mediocrity, but you should always learn and always know, you should always know that you can get better. And so if you're not the finished article right there and then, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't try and you shouldn't keep going with your endeavours. Yeah, and to add to that as well, there might be parts of jobs that you might not yet have been able to access the information to learn it. If you've been to private school, you might have had more art and drama lessons than if you've not been to private school. So you will be similarly have certain experiences that doesn't therefore mean that if you've not had those you wouldn't be able to pick them up or that there's something deficient in you that there are certain things that you couldn't possibly be 100% in advance of unless you'd had like advantages and money and things like that and so like it has to be yeah exposure to those things I used to think when I went to Oxford there were all these because I was a bit older when I went to Oxford and there were these people that were like literally in school uniform the year before who would just say, oh, I'm going to direct this Greek tragedy at the Oxford Playhouse. And I used to think, where does this confidence come from? But then I found out, like at Eton, they have a professional theatre with, you know, people doing the lights and sound and it's all run like a professional theatre. You've got to be there for the half. So they know all the terminology. They've had those experiences while they're at school. And this is, look, I don't want that taken away from anyone. I want everyone to have access to it. I want everything to be brought up to that level. I don't want I don't. I was going to say, I want it taken away from them and given to us. But that's a difference that no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? I want, I don't, I'm not someone going, yeah. you know, like I'm more going, why don't all children have access to 
wonderful things that are going to make their lives happy and well-rounded. But I do think almost too much of it can make you unpleasant. I think entitlement is the residue of privilege. And I think that when you see people just coming in, yeah, I could do this, I could do this. And half the time they can't. They just think they can be president of the United States. Turns out, no, they're terrible at it. But something about their life experience has conditioned them to think whatever they want, they should have, and they should be able to own any space they're in. And I think what you're saying is wonderful and important, and everybody needs to hear it. Josie, how do people access Arts Emergency if they're thinking, well, I'd love to have a mentor because I'm feeling, much like Sile felt, this isn't for me, I'm not going to be able to go to university or, you know, this is so far away, or I know I sort of want something in this area, but I don't know what all the things are. So people can now self-refer to the service, which is wonderful. Like the thing that's been the most overwhelming is to have seen the organisation grow and develop and be able to provide more services to more people. So you can go to arts-emergency.org and then you're going to have to navigate the website because I can't remember the specific part that you should be going to. But um, also I'd say if you're a listener and you've got a bit of cash, arts-emergency.org slash donate. If like me, you love to go on quiz shows, think of us when you make the money. (laughs) 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 Okay, so if somebody said, hey, I'd love to pay for one person to be mentored and looked after and blah, blah, blah. Is there an amount of money that would be significant to help one person because you've got staff that are wonderful people that are making this all go around. Presumably the mentors mentor for free. Yes. But the staff and the admin to make sure this many people are matched with the right mentors, access more mentors, men, you know, train the mentors, all of that must cost. So what what would be a sum of money that would be meaningful to help one person like Sile kind of get through, do you reckon? Um, I mean, actually... Is that a bad question? No, it is a complicated question because Sile, the the £1,000 scheme thing... I feel like that was it, but that's yeah. obviously a lot of money. And that's the sort of thing that oh, I think they could probably donate 50 pence, you know, like here's the thing. What is wonderful about arts emergencies is largely funded by personal donations. So unlike many other charities that are larger, they're not having to go after certain grants or having to get money from certain places and therefore take on the compromises that that would entail. It's supported by ordinary people who give £3 a month, £2 a month, £5 a month. You know, that builds and builds. And like, again, like I was saying it's at like the start. like hypnotherapy that is. That a month, a month, a month. She said a month three times. I've just been having some hypnotherapy. I said, what's the smallest about 50p? £2 a month, £3 a month, £4 a month, £50 a month, £500 a month, £1,000 a month. Whatever you've got, £10,000 a month, uh, 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 half a million quid a month. Jeff Bezos regularly listens to the Guilty Feminist. He could easily give a quarter of a million quid a month. Listen, Bezos, chuck us a billion and while you're at it, chuck me 100000 Oh, that's that's really nice that you've asked for a, a not a life-changing sum for yourself, just a nice chunky... I just want really a swimming out. pool or a hot tub. That's all I need. And then That's I'll be happy. That's all I need. For Jeff, Jeffrey. Um, so <laughs> anything a month, what's a significant amount that you reckon would make if somebody had a decent amount of money, they've got a career in the arts that they think, yeah, I wouldn't have got this without getting here. What would be a dream sum of money for someone to give you if they had a great income and they haven't spent much money this year because of the pandemic, because they haven't been able to go on holidays. What would be your dream for someone to give? So if somebody really was thinking about making a generous donation to Arts Emergency, if they were to consider giving £1,000 a year, £1,000 fully funds a mentoring place and really, really invest in the organisation. And 
I can't stress what a wonderful organisation it is. Like, I fully appreciate it. it does seem a little bit like perhaps we're two members of a cult, but... Yeah. <laughs> No, it doesn't feel like that. It is run on enthusiasm and love. And as, you know, older people, it is a privilege to meet sort of 16, 17-year-olds, hear their thoughts, hear their ideas, hear their dreams and hopes for the future. It's like the most wonderfully exciting thing to look to the future and think like, wow, these are the people that are going to be stepping up and making things. And like, it's just really cool. And I do feel that doesn't take much to change culture for the better you know it doesn't take millions of people it takes a few people just being given the chance to shine as they are the chance to step up to what they're supposed to be and Josie if somebody thinks oh I think I'd make quite a good mentor oh um, please who are you looking for for mentors always looking for people and we have a network which is a really large really large, I think thousands of people now where, so mentoring is a commitment and it is something where you need to be reliably there for somebody. And that might not be right for everyone at whatever stage they're in, in their life. But with the network, say you are a film director, Mm -hmm. you can say, I'd like to join the network. And then if there are young people who have specific questions or specific information that they'd like to talk about or anything like that, specific requests, they can then with their mentor access you. So it could be that you then you're basically putting yourself out there to be almost on call for people. So the network places a lower commitment than the mentor. So if you're available you can come and answer that question. If you're not available, you don't have to. What sort of commitment would the mentor have? So I think it's initially for a year, but we also do want people who are going to take it seriously and take the person that they're working with seriously, you know, take the young person seriously. But how many hours a year, Soleil, did Renee Lodge spend with you? So Renny and I did like almost like a beta version (laughs) of this. So we worked together or worked together. She mentored me. I can't even remember how long ago it was now, but the way that our mentoring worked was different to how it works now. So now it's for a year. So mentors and mentees will kind of meet up a few times a year. I I don't want to put a number to it in case it's wrong, but I throw six out there. That might be too many. Um, But, you know, they'll meet at agreed times and on agreed dates. and, And now it's obviously all being done over Zoom for a year. And then usually after that year, they will stay in touch. But mentors, what's really nice is that mentors do it again. So they'll get another mentee the next year and another one. And mentors who do that can often like kind of refine their style and really get used to it. But there's full training and it's all kind of told up front, like this is how many hours or this is how many sessions we've seen get the best results. But because it's so personalised, there are some students who it might not work for in that way. So it has to be slightly tailored. So what I'd say is if you have the time and you have the passion and, you know, obviously the position in the arts that you want to share your knowledge with someone and you can do that consistently over a year then get in touch with Arts of Urgency and see what might work for you. Great so whether you're someone with 50p a month or whether you're somebody who is a young person feeling a bit disenfranchised and desperate for a life in the arts or whether you're somebody who has a position in the arts and you think you'd make a good mentor or someone for the network please get in touch with Arts Emergency and where do we get in touch with Arts Emergency Josie Long? Arts-emergency.org. Thank you very much for asking. I am delighted. Uh, I know that uh, the arts tend to be often accused of being very London-centric. How much access is there to this stuff if you're outside London? So there are projects all over. Uh, I know off the top of my head that there's London, Manchester, Merseyside, Margate. 
there are lots of different places that this project is now set up and running. So if you're not in London, don't despair, don't worry. It doesn't mean that you won't be able to get a mentor or take part or have any of the fantastic opportunities that have been sucked up by the capital for too long. So um, just have a look and see where Arts Emergency are and how close they are to you. And if there isn't one that you can get in touch with in your local area, then get in touch just generally and and say you're interested because that's how this organisation works. And that's why it's so brilliant that it is very much led by the mentees. I mean, everything's on Zoom now anyway. I mean, it doesn't matter where you are. And that's mm, one exactly. good thing. I mean, of, of all the terrible things that come out this year, one good thing is now, I think if you're in the out of Hebrides, you just wouldn't think, well, that's in London. I'm not there. You'd go, well, it wouldn't matter if I was living in Islington or the Isle of Skye. It's all going to be on Zoom anyway. So get in touch. Do not let geography get in your way. And if you are living outside the United <laughs> Kingdom, there will be programs like this around the world. So get in touch uh, with one where you are, give it a Google. And if there isn't one in your country and you think, why isn't there? You might be the person to start it. So be inspired. This is something we say in Arts Emergency. It's a slogan that I love to write a slogan. And it's sometimes if you want something to exist, you have to make it yourself. So That's absolutely right. It's so true. And can I just say, I admire the effort that's gone into this and the resilience to build it up. I was very moved by a show of yours, Josie, some years ago in Edinburgh. I don't know if I've ever told you this, probably drunk at a party I might have, but you might have been drunk and not remembered it. Um, but I went to see a show of yours called Trying is Good. And oh, wow. it was, was like the, virtually the last day of Edinburgh. And if you've ever done a full run of an Edinburgh show, you know by the end you're very tired. You can often feel a bit broken, a bit beaten up because, you know, sometimes someone will come along and totally misunderstand your show and write an unpleasant review on a blog or something, but it really hurts your feelings if you see it. Or in the Times newspaper, for example. Yeah, well, if you're lucky enough, for the, if you're privileged enough for the Times to come and review <laughs> you, Josie, that's true. Yeah, it's a privilege um, to be slagged off It's a privilege to be slagged off by the Times. Yeah, thank you, Dominic <laughs> Maxwell. Um, but... Um, Sometimes it's just like a student who's totally misunderstood your show or something like that, and they just write something, and it could be something very personal to you that you've shared, and you're very vulnerable up there. And, you know, but you keep going, and you keep sometimes your audiences are, depends on the year, the audiences aren't as good as other years or whatever. And so to do a long run, and I saw this show well before The Guilty Feminist, and I wasn't, you know, I wouldn't have had anything like the audiences that I would have now. And I remember seeing the show, and there was a bit in it that you did. About Do you remember this, about the Peaceable Kingdom? Oh, yeah. And you showed this picture of um, the Peaceable Kingdom, which if you don't know what that is, it's the bit in the Bible where the lion and the lamb lie down together. So it's a piece so peaceful that even these animals that would normally be attacking each other aren't. And there was a man who was religious, and in his religion, the only appropriate thing to paint was the Peaceable Kingdom, but he wanted to be an artist. But you shouldn't be painting like worldly things and you shouldn't be painting God because that would be blasphemous. So all you can paint is the Peaceable Kingdom. So he kept on painting this for his whole life, wanting to be improve as an artist and be an artist. And you imagined him taking it to the gallery and the gallery, oh, that's really nice. He'll pop that up and then going up to going up the north. That's sort of the same though, isn't it? And saying to his wife, saying, could you not paint me a nice bunch of flowers or something else? But he just keep on going, keep on going. And you showed all of these different sorts that you imagined that he might have painted. But there's just this moment at the end that it makes me cry. And I've told many people, and I always cry telling people, you imagined him on his deathbed going, I've really nailed that peaceful kingdom. 
And I'm crying as if I'm saying it. And it's because it was so conscious up the end of Edinburgh for me and how hard I've tried. And, you know, whether or not it's been a successful one or a tough one, whether or not I felt everyone looked over my shoulder in Brooks Bar because no one thought I was important enough to talk to, whatever, I really nailed that peaceful kingdom. And I showed up every day and I did it. And I've always carried that with me, that trying is good. You know, people make out like trying is uncool, but trying is all we've got. You know, especially now with politics and the policing bill and this new refugee bill, trying is all we've got. But I once said to a refugee family I was supporting, I was like, I don't know if I can, what I can do here. They were looking for a particular way through the visa. I said, but look, I'll try, I can try, but I want to just lower expectations. And so I was like, all I can do is try, but I don't, I can't make any promises because I was too worried about them getting their hopes up. And I remember the dad of the family saying to me, trying is enough. And I knew what he meant. It was like, if somebody's out there trying for me, I can get up and put my trousers on and put my shoes on and take my kids to school. If, If somebody's trying and I know trying is happening, I can keep trying. And so I feel like there's a sort of thread in my life between that show and that Edinburgh of the trying that we're now having to do in politics to fight the draconian measures that are coming in. And Grace Petrie sang this amazing song on last Monday's Guilty Feminist that you can listen to. Um, and it's called The Losing Side. And it, and it's, wow. oh God, we were all crying listening to it. She only finished it five minutes before the show. Yeah, I really didn't realise when I got involved with left-wing politics that we wouldn't just be instantly the winners the whole time. <laughs> I was like, well, I think we'll find we're right. So we should be winning just about now. <laughs> That's such a really incredibly kind and generous thing to say about my silly stuff. And it means a lot to me that you would have responded to it like that. So thank you very much. Stuff like that, those moments, they're what keep you going in years in comedy where you think the whole year, you think I've slid backwards. Fewer people are interested in me now than they were at the beginning of the year. You know, I had some terrible times where I I nearly left and I nearly left and I nearly left. And, you know, I'm so glad I pushed on and I'm so glad I've learned what I've learned and I've pushed on in both comedy and I I don't really know what I do as activism, but, you know, Trying, uh, that's a real what a rhyme of feminist butt thing to say. I don't think you could call it activism. Uh, why am I saying that? Stop, stop, stop undermining it. Uh, but in political drive as well as comedy, I'm so glad I've stuck with it because you just have to get to that point where you just get over a, a hill so that you've got purchase. And I think a lot of it feels like you're crawling up a cliff on your fingernails and then you just get to a ledge, a cusp, and you think, okay, I'm on the cusp now, I'm not going back. Um, so thank you for that show and many other shows that you've done, Josie Long, and all that you've contributed to comedy and the way that you've pioneered comedy as a young woman, which you really did. And then, much like Elizabeth Garrett Anderson, not going, well, I'm I'm the only female doctor, I'm special. She opened a school to train other women in medicine so there could be more female doctors. And uh, so I appreciate everything you've done in comedy and in the arts, Josie. Thanks. That's very nice. Yeah, it's a tribute. <laughs> So this is your life. <laughs> Thanks, Elay, so much for coming on as well. <laughs> That's so right. I actually went to Elizabeth Barrett Anderson's school. I <laughs> talked there I was the like, day that, that uh, Michelle Obama came to give a speech the second time. Well, shall I tell you something about that day, right? Which I'll never forgive them for. And if my head teacher, I don't know if this is going to make it in, but if my head teacher is listening to this, I will never forget and I will never forgive her. Basically, what they did was they rounded up all the naughty kids and naughty being like anyone who wasn't smiling angelic and part of the choir and they sent us home and they were like you guys can have a half day go home it's so great you know and then to the choir they were like you guys have to stay 
We've got a special guest coming in. And special guest, when you're in school, usually means like some X Factor has been. Who turns up? Who turns up to our school? I was so pissed off. I was like, I got home, right? And the school was, it's in Islington. So the school's at the foot of Chapel Market. Me and my friends laughed our way up Chapel Market. We went to the chicken and chip shop, went to McDonald's. We had a great time. It was like, you know, one o'clock in the afternoon. So we were like, hi, everyone's in school and we're not. I get home and I switch on the news and then what's the news fucking showing? My school hall, the choir, singing to Michelle Obama. I was absolutely oh fuming and I've never forgiven her and I will never, ever, as long as I live, forgive the, her that I went to that school was that and was a part of that. the first time she came? I think it must have been because I was there the second time she yeah, came. Yeah, yeah, so that was... Wait, so she's been back twice. That was the twice. first time, the second she's time. Back she's come back, she's got a relationship no, with No, not only has now. she been back twice, but she like took a cohort of girls and paid for them to go to Washington You should have been paid to go so to like, Washington. Wow. I wasn't. I had to. I had to stay in school and do photography class. Wow! Oh, wow! Um, well, the second by the second time she came back, I I'd gone on to college, so I was. I'm so sorry. Well, that is so incredibly unfair. It's part <laughs> of my personal like trauma. I should leave that in, but Michelle, because Michelle Obama, if you're listening, <laughs> what you want now <laughs> is to get Silly Edwards over to Washington. Oh yeah, she is an emerging. <laughs> agent who is bringing up this next generation of diverse talent you regret not meeting her and what you want to do now is make sure you meet her perhaps in fact you could she could represent you for your next book in britain michelle if you need a uk agent for your next book deal yeah, yeah, i am the one for you, you also megan markle if you're listening. she wrote a book that will be the biggest like catch of all books of all time megan markle oh, she just putting out there megan if you're you have been listening to The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis White, guest co-host Josie Long, and our very special guest, Silly Edwards. The Guilty Feminist theme tune was composed by Mark Hodge and produced by Nick Sheldon. The producer was Tom Salisky for the spontaneity shop. Thanks to Rachel Craft and Gina Vizio and everyone who made this episode happen, as well as all of you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes, visit guiltyfeminist.com. a different one Everyone no I don't hate one. it I'm thinking no I'm going to wipe it it hasn't gone down well I'm wiping it I haven't finished I'm what I was I don't know you don't need to be worried about me I was thinking about it and then I was trying to think what I had to say about it Instacart shoppers no groceries they know that you can't make guacamole with rock hard avocados they know how to quickly find those peanut butter pretzels you can never find and they keep you in the know by giving you updates about your order along the way. Let Instacart shoppers help take shopping off your plate so you can get time and energy back for what really matters. Visit instacart.com or download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Additional terms apply. Instacart. Add life to cart.